This episode of I Save That Podcast is sponsored by SecureCath. The revolutionary SecureCath subcutaneous catheter securement device now has new clinical evidence that it significantly reduces catheter-related infections. Learn more at www.securacath.com. SecureCath, because patients deserve better. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 5 of the I Save That Podcast. Eric Sager, Ava's Director of Communications and Java Editor with you. And as always, I'm joined by Judy Thompson, Ava Director of Clinical Education. Welcome, Judy. Can you believe that it's September already? I cannot. No, I am shocked, though I really wish it were basically January 1st. But nonetheless, I've never wanted a, a year to get over as much as I have 2020. <laughs> a lot of people would agree with you on that. Um, and with us for this episode of the podcast is Laura Crick, uh, who is the Vice President of Clinical and Market Development at Interad Medical. Laura, welcome. Glad to have you on the podcast. Thank you. And thank you for the privilege of sponsoring this episode. Absolutely. We're happy to have you here. And also, Mark Rao, a nurse practitioner and the, the vascular access team leader at the University of Arkansas, Go Hogs, and who is also, I learned before this uh, from Judy, a past president of the Association for Vascular Access. Mark, welcome. Thank you very much. An honor to be that. We're happy to have you here. So we're going to be discussing a little bit about what Interad and SecureCath are going to be doing at Ava at your fingertips, which comes your way October 27th through the 30th. Um, and it's all a virtual meeting. So go to avainfo.org slash annual to register. And then we're a lot of that is going to be clinical evidence, right, Laura? So that's when we're going to focus on what Mark and his team have done recently. Yeah, so it's really exciting. It's been a kind of a, a whirlwind, I think, for everybody this 2020, this amazing year that we're having. Um, uh, and, you know, preparing for a virtual conference, we're really excited because even though we're not going to be face to face, we have a lot of things that are absolutely uh, phenomenal to be talking about, um, including the recommendations on the use of vascular access in COVID-19 patients, um, an Italian perspective, was published by Pitarudi et al. in Critical Care in May. Um, and we were very excited because SecureCath got a strong mention there as uh, the risk of central venous catheter dislodgement is particularly high in the COVID-19 patient. And particularly during maneuvers of pronation, supination, uh, consider the use of sub subcutaneously anchored securement. And with SecureCath being the only subcutaneously anchored securement, uh, we're really, really privileged to have been mentioned in this uh, recommendation coming from uh, our Italian colleagues. And um, another consensus document, which followed in July um, by uh, Pennelli et al., uh, was published, co-published, I should say, by the Gavisalt Wakova Group. Um, and they discussed the uses of subcutaneously anchored securement, which is, again, secure cath, um, for central venous catheters and uh, really strong statements in terms of its effectiveness in reducing the risk of dislodgement uh, and using it for securing PICs and other types of central venous access devices in children and neonates as well as adults. And SecureCath SAS, as they like to call it in uh, Europe, uh, is associated with a low incidence of undesirable effects, most of them local and low clinical relevance, which probably can be minimized by appropriate prevention and management. 
we find that uh, we find that with proper training and education and support, we see that these complications are near near disappear, um, if not are completely gone. And um, with strong education, with our strong team who will be at our virtual booth, so please come and visit us at the Ava virtual booth. You'll get the chance to meet our great clinical education management team and uh, learn about our new e-learning program, our two uh, educational webinars, which are available through our e-learning platform, as well as um, work with them on all of our virtual precepting and new online uh, on-demand support tools that we have. Um, But I have to say the most exciting thing that we'll be talking about at our booth uh, is the publication that came out in June. from the American Journal of Infection Control, which was authored by Mark Rao, uh, Kevin Arnold, and Tim Spencer. And I'm privileged to have shared this spot uh, on your podcast with Mark. Absolutely. Laura, it's, first of all, it's great to see you. It's great to see you, or hear you, I should say. I'm so (laughs) sad we won't get to see each other in person. I know, hugs, virtual hugs. Virtual hugs to everyone out there. To everyone, yes. For those few people out there um, that don't know what SecureCath is and what what the securement does, we're talking about not adhesive. So walk it through a little bit for the few people that don't know what the marketing genius behind the little orange devices. <gasps> I'm far from the marketing genius. That I'll have to give all the credit to Jeff, but. Um, I uh, have been leading the clinical programs for the last five years, and it's been an exciting adventure for myself. Who's I've lived in vascular access now for 15 years, um, and it's a personal passion for a lot of reasons. But uh, SecureCath really got my attention because it's so different from everything else, and it solves a lot of the common problems associated with tubes exiting the body. Um, It's sort of a very simple concept. Uh, Two little nitinol feet that are laser cut and polished go into the insertion site of any tube that exits the body. Um, Obviously, in our world in vascular access, it's a pick line, it's a midline, it's a central line, it could be even a tunneled line. Um, And rather than using sutures, tape, or adhesives products, uh, I won't name names, um, but we all know who we use the most, Um, you know, instead of using those adhesive solutions to secure the catheter, we go in mechanically into the subdermal tissue and go in through non-invasively through the same site that the catheter is entering. And then we uh, anchor onto the device itself. And so by uh, securing around the catheter, we use friction and physics to keep the catheter from moving, pistoning, and migrating. Um, And our evidence has shown, again, with proper use, proper training, proper placement, we have uh, very high levels of satisfaction, both from the patient and the practitioners that use the product, um, and very little uh, to no complications related to the proper use of the securement device. Well, thanks. I know there's a few people out here that probably didn't know what it was, so I just wanted to get them a a bit of a visual picture. Yeah, little orange thing. (laughs) True, true. Mark, it's so good to hear from you as well. And again, I'm so sad I won't get to see you in person this year. But I'm so excited. I I read your article. And congrats, by the way, it's stellar. You have a giant sample size. And please tell us a bit more about it. Well, um, I think before I start the study, I just want to go back and tell you a little bit that, that we were an early adopter to the technology um, and the theory behind the subcutaneous securement with all of our pick lines. And 
we love seeing all the articles that were coming out throughout the years concerning the dislodgement and the migration. And we kept saying there had to be more. You know, this is great, but there, this is this is sliced bread, and there ha- we have to prove something. So we dug down and we kept thinking, hypothesizing that what about our infection rates with this? If we don't put more picks in, we decrease our infection rate. If the pick doesn't move, we potentially decrease our infection rate. So we started digging for information related to that. And what we did with um, the help of of Dr. Kevin Arnold and uh, Tim Spencer, who most of the AVA family know, and um, I started reviewing the data and for four years of pick placements at our university uh, medical center. It's a level one trauma center in the middle of the state. We were having the issue with patients being discharged from our center going two and a half, three miles or three hours away. And then when they were having issues with their pick or dislodged or their pick became migrated, would have to return to our center since we are a single center center. Um, And because of that reason, we were trying to find something that we could keep our lines in for the life of the dwell. So, of course, that led us to SecureCat. But then we started digging into the other questions. Can we prove anything related to infection? So within our institution, um, the PIC lines are placed between two different departments at the time. Um, One is our interventional radiology group. We do a fantastic job. They just chose not to go with this design and this technology, whereas our group full-heartedly went headfirst into it and decided, yes, we want this. We want to prove it. So after we've been using it for a few years, we started digging into the information that we had. And in four-year period between uh, 2015 and 2018, we reviewed a total of 7,779 pick insertions over that four-year period. And we did an IRB approved. We did a randomized control retrospective observational quality review of the information. And what we found during that four-year period, we had a total of 47 collapses that were reported that are, were associated with pick lines. So we wanted to break that down again, okay? Of those 47, which of those came from the interventional group, which were using an adhesive device, versus the ones that we placed that were using a subcutaneous device? But again, the first question we had to answer was, were any of the collapses related to insertion? So we reached out to our infection preventionist friends and got in our colleagues there and said, please help us with this. You know, And we actually found that none of the 47 met, met the data requirements to be called a insertion-related collapse. So all of these collapses were dwelling in our hospital, in our bed, during the time it was identified. So we removed the possibility that it was a insertion-related incident, and it was only related to the care and maintenance the catheter received while in our facility. So the skew was both of the catheters are being taken care of exactly the same under the same policies and procedure and by the same body of nurses. So we looked at the breakdown between which of those collapses were related to an adhesive device versus which of the collapses were related to a subcutaneous securement device. And we did find some interesting information. At that time, we found that there was a 288% increased risk 
of clapses associated with the adhesive device versus the subcutaneous securement device. So besides the added perk of minimal dislodgement, minimal migration, minimal pistoning, the love of the nurses during a dressing change without the catheter uh, being totally unhinged and the ability to move in or out in any way during that procedure, we found that we did have a decrease in our clapsy rates related to seemingly the device or there was no other characteristic that we could find doing that. Wow, Mark, that was amazing. I'm sure you mentioned a second ago about the love from the nurses. Talk to me a little bit more about that. Well, I get calls all the time, especially from our home health, our, you know, our outlying health in- industries that, that are looking at the dressing change. And I spoke to many of them, and one of their biggest fears during a dressing change is the non-securement of the catheter when they have to remove the adhering device to the skin and free the catheter to put a new device on. So what we found was a lot of times they don't change it. They'll put a new dressing on, but they don't change it because they're fearful of that. So the people that are now using it and, and using the education that, that was provided by the, the company and from Interad, um, love it because now they can, they can lower their fear of the dressing change steps because now they know during the time that they're removing the dressing, during the time that they're focusing on the cleaning 360 degrees around the insertion site, they're not so focused and worried about, I can't let this move. I can't let this move. They can focus more on, I can get that spot cleaner. I can get this spot cleaner. <laughs> Very so their good. focus is different. Exactly. Exactly. So talking about um, the virtual learning, I've seen, I've seen the education offered. And it's best in class. It's exceptional. Laura, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Well, thank you, Judy. Coming from you as the director of education, that's an incredible compliment. Um, I I have to say, what we learned was that um, we needed to continue to do more. Um, and we built our education team. We've evolved over the last five years. And our uh, one of our strongest team members, uh, everybody on my team is the strongest team member, if you haven't heard me say that before, but um, uh, came to me and said, we really need to, to get this on a recording, on an e-learning platform. And so we sought out the assistance of the Clinician Exchange to help us build our, our platform. And uh, we have four modules that are less than 10 minutes to execute, to watch, to participate in, and to take the exam. And they go through an introduction to what SecureCath is, uh, insertion, care, and removal. And we also have a helpful tips video that's included, um, not as a a part of the curriculum, but as a a assist that can be available for anybody to reference. And um, those four parts can be assigned based on the clinical need of the audience. So when you think about a hospital who um, has the inserters in one group and has maybe folks that are doing care and removal or just care, and maybe only certain supervisors do removal, the modules can be assigned to the learners based on what elements of their practice are relevant. Um, And we found that this is really, really excellent ahead of any hands-on precepting and hands-on experience with the product. Uh, We've used it now in several of our implementations and seen a tremendous 
uh, improvement in the experience, where we've also seen uh, phenomenal uh, adoption and support for adoption in, in our expansion of the use of SecureCast is uh, in the home care and post-acute environment. Because how many times is a patient, and this is, as Mark indicated, one of the big reasons people want to use SecureCast is they don't control what happens to that line once it leaves there and once it leaves what they've done at insertion, once it leaves their care in their hospital in many cases. So um, it's a resource that allows for the community to get the support that they need in care and removal training. Uh, we also have a 24-hour hotline, which is manned by a full clinical team and is answered at 24-7. If you're ever wanting to prank us, it's 800-225-0000. Um, Wait a minute. Let me write that down. No. I, I got to get that too. I'm going to prank you on Halloween or something. Trick or yeah, treat. Or, and it'll actually be a trick. Up, if you're up late, happy hour. Um, my friend, my friends who, who answer it most of the time are going to be mad at me for saying that. But, um, you know, definitely give us a call and oh. just see who answers because it rings all. Okay, Laura. Uh, all, yeah. Can I, can I have a little humor in here too? I was sitting, I was sitting at a dinner party and um, someone was asking about the app. And around me were quite a few friends from the Inred family um, who, who answer it. I wasn't sure who had the app or the phone. So <laughs> I was showing this guy how the app worked. And so all of a sudden I said, well, let's just see who answers. So we're sitting at this dinner party after discussing it. I hit the phone button because I'm going to call and say who answers it. Four people stand up at the table and run out of the restaurant because the phones are going off. And it's, all, and it's like, hi, it's, me, I'm sitting at the table. We just were proving that this thing works. <laughs> that is oh awesome. my gosh. Yeah. Awesome. So the phone rings, um, uh, six of us simultaneously and, uh, it's a first come first serve basis, but all six of us get the call. So if you call, you'll, you'll get a prompt. It'll say, you know, if you're calling for clinical support, press one, if you, you know, et cetera, it's this normal sort of outbound message. Um, but it, it, once you hit one, it rings our phones and, um, when we get the call, we log the calls, we track the calls, we track um, for data and statistics to make sure that we have information related to uh, what they're calling about, what types of questions. And that actually helped inform what we needed to provide online training and resources for. It helps us uh, continually improve our content and our materials. And now we can actually track what regions of the country or world are needing support and we can launch our e-learning platforms um, based on the calls we're getting and the demand that we see out there. So um, we are really trying to be more proactive, but in some cases you have to use reactive information to be able to be more proactive. So um, data is power. And in this new virtual world we're living in, uh, in 2020, it's it's uh, what we were on the track to do slowly has really accelerated in these these few months. It so, has. Uh, we're, well, we're really... Fun pleased to see that our e-learning was queued up in advance of this, um, but is now getting um, a lot of utilization. And um, that coupled with some other advancements that we've provided in our in our virtual precepting, uh, which we're launching uh, just probably around the time Ava virtual goes live. And we'll be doing um, both virtual and on-site precepting where on-site precepting is permitted. But in many hospitals, because of COVID, uh, vendor support is limited. So we're, again, having to reinvent how we do things and supporting our clinicians, supporting our practitioners, supporting our customers and our patients is really, really critical. Well, speaking of Ava at your fingertips, we have the virtual vendor hall and I want to make sure everybody goes to visit that. Laura, tell me about your, as much as you can about your booth. 
I know it's a lot of secret right now. I, I think it's going to be really awesome. Again, we're, we're, we're focused on the clinical uh, data that we'll provide there. Uh, so we'll have lots of clinical resources. Um, we can do cost savings models uh, for hospitals that are really feeling the financial pressures. And I've heard from vascular access teams, the financial pressures that many of them are under. Um, so we've built some resources and methods to help them um, basically frame their practice with data and uh, find ways to reduce costs and reduce burden of complications. And we can work with them on that, especially where SecureCath is a solution to those problems. And, um, you know, we're going to highlight, again, our educational tools and resources. So even for those who know what SecureCath is, there's new stuff. Come visit, uh, come stop by and say hi and tell us how things are going. And uh, we look forward to, to interacting with you in our virtual uh chat video, however it's supposed to work, but I'm excited to figure it all out. <laughs> As all of us are. Also, just to add, if you if you would like more in-depth analysis of the research, um, we will be, uh, the, the three authors, uh, Dr. Kevin Arnold, Tim Spencer, and myself, are also doing an on-demand within Ava Fingertips for the virtual uh, scientific meeting. Oh, you don't want to miss that. That's going to be great. Excellent. So I, I want to thank Laura, Mark, for your time and expertise. Eric, it's always fun to hang out and play with you. Definitely. Thank Great to hear from you guys. Thank you both. Likewise. Thanks, and again, the, a the Ava family, re family reunion will still happen just differently this year. It will. And right. we're going to get back to traditional one of these days. So right. everybody there'll be plenty of There'll be plenty of opportunities for networking and and all those chats and video chats and all those good things too with Ava at your fingertips. So hope to see everyone there. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Mark. Definitely. Thank you, Judy. Thank you. Look, looking forward to it. Be safe, Take everybody. Care. Be safe. Thanks. Be safe. Catheter securement choice does affect central line associated bloodstream infection risk. The SecuraCath has shown to significantly reduce CLAPSI risk. A recent study by Rowe in the American Journal of Infection Control showed an adhesive catheter securement device had a 288% increase in risk of CLAPSI compared to the SecuraCath. SecuraCath decreases CLAPSI risk, dramatically reduces catheter dislodgements and replacements, and lowers the total cost of patient care. Make the switch to the only subcutaneous catheter securement device today, because patients deserve better. Learn more at www.securacath.com. Hey, welcome back to the I Save That podcast. And in this section of the podcast, I am pleased to be joined uh, by Michelle Cox. She is the 2020 Ava at Your Fingertips D-Team Chair and Jocelyn Hill, who is on the Ava Board of Directors. She's president-elect and also the board liaison for the D team for the 2020 Ava at your fingertips. And so obviously uh, that's the theme of this little section of, of this episode. And, and I wanted to have Jocelyn and Michelle on with us uh, to discuss the decision to move from the in-person meeting in Denver, Colorado at the Gaylord Rockies to more of the virtual uh, meeting space that is happening at the end of October. So first Jocelyn and, and Michelle, welcome to the show. Thanks, Eric. Well, Thanks for having us. No problem. Thanks for taking the time to chat today. Jocelyn, I'll start with you uh, as a member of the board, obviously president-elect of AVA. What is kind of been the overall feeling and mood with 
making the decision to to go to a virtual meeting. I know that it was discussed probably at length and with everything going on with the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, the decision was made to, to switch from the in-person event to a virtual one. So what, from your vantage point, point of view, how, how has that been happening? Yeah, no, I mean, I think uh, on the board, we had been monitoring closely what's been happening with other organizations, especially, um, you know, ones that are related to us, like the Society for Interventional Radiologists, SIR. Uh, They were one of the first ones in March to actually cancel their uh, meetings. So, you know, that really triggered for us uh, to bring it to each board meeting as an uh, agenda item to kind of monitor. Obviously, March was quite far away for us. Um, in Den- you know, our Denver con- uh, meet scientific meeting was scheduled for September. So I think there was just so much, um, they, everything was so unpredictable then, and we, we had no idea really the extent of the pandemic. Um, and how it affect us all. So we had been discussing it since March from the very beginning and keeping our eye out on what was happening in the industry and in our hospitals and with our members. So obviously contract issues with the Gaylord were also at play. Um, And our conference manager group who have worked with us for many, many years, they know us as an organization and know our members. So, you know, it was really helpful to have them on our side to work with us to meet the needs of the organization. So once we made the decision and it really did kind of, um, you know, hinged on what was happening with the contract and, and dates um or signing things that, that we had to make that decision on the board. And really, I think based on what's happened locally, regionally, nationally, internationally, I, obviously it was the obvious decision to make. Yeah, it's it's kind of been crazy. You know, I mean, we're like in July right now talking. And so it's really only a little over four months since things got exceptionally bad uh, with the pandemic. But I feel like the, the proactiveness and talking about it all the way back in March. I mean, when you, like you mentioned, September is six months away from March and here we are, we moved it back even further just to get an idea. And it's just crazy how it's, the dominoes have all fallen. Michelle, as the leader of the D team, the D team chair, you know, you have 15 individuals on, on the D team with you. How was the communication between all of you uh, to, to make this, this move and how did that come down as, and as a leader of, of the D team, you know, what was kind of the reception and and how did you move forward with that? Yeah, it's been, uh, apparently I'm informed that this is, you know, the first time for something such as this in uh, the history of Ava scientific meetings. I know there's been other events uh, like 9-11, Hurricane Katrina that altered plans and, and maybe if I understand correctly, pushed plans, but First time we've had to make the decision to um, completely cancel the on-site meeting and go virtually. So, you know, I I selfishly kind of chuckled to myself about about that opportunity that I I was presented with. But, um, you know, when we met in person in February in Denver, uh, the D team for our planning meeting, uh, you know, we were full court press with with our discussions and and selecting the selection of speakers and. yeah, COVID was kind of happening, but at least in my mind, 
the thought of our meeting being canceled really wasn't there. I mean, it seemed like a foreign thought to us. So um, we were working hard. We we had everything in place, very exciting meeting planned for Denver. Um, and then as, uh, as you know, we just talked about time progressed and very quickly we could see the writing on the wall that, that things were going to have to change. So um, we continued with that forward motion and um, along with the leadership of Ava and conference managers, we continued uh, as business as usual until we didn't. Um, when the board made the decision, which was the right decision, um, after weighing all the appropriate things. And as Jocelyn mentioned, SIR and uh, Wakova and all of these different conferences, um, choosing a different platform, um, it was it was the right decision. So just as quickly, we downshifted and um, under guidance, under strict guidance from conference managers and, of course, Ava leadership, um, it's almost, we didn't skip a beat. It was, it's been seamless and fascinating. Um, the, the platforms uh, for virtual meetings or for virtual conferences were explored by conference managers and, and the board. I, I, the D team wasn't as much a part of that. But then um, we were given the, um, the description of what uh, the virtual meeting would look like. And so we were able to take the speakers um, and the and the topics and the presentations and really plug them in. Um, it, although we had to decrease the number of presentations and speakers, we worked together really hard to uh, try and 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 narrow down for this year um, optimal speaker selection for for the virtual conference. And um, I have to say, you know, from what I've seen of it so far and what I've heard of it, it's it's a fabulous platform. Um, a lot of folks. Um, may not even be able to wrap their head around. I'm not sure I'm able to completely wrap my head around exactly what it's going to look like, um, <laughs> but it's very exciting um, what I've seen and learned so far. You know, the D team did a great job, like I said, in downshifting and really just um, putting their foot on the gas and making sure that we we selected and um, and worked together to put together a conference virtually that is, um, you know, going to knock people's socks off. The feedback that I've received thus far with the the cost um, that the board really, you know, uh, mandated, I guess, put their foot down and said, no, if we're going to do this, um, this is what we want our um, our members to to pay and to to get from it. Um, the feedback's been fabulous. So many people that were not able to travel because of their own employer restrictions or restrictions within their state or their borders for the international travelers. They were not going to be able to come regardless if we had the meeting or not in Denver. So I have heard overwhelmingly how excited everyone is that they're going to be able to participate in Ava at their fingertips, at your fingertips, um, when they wouldn't have been able to before. Right. Yeah. I think that's a, a big, a big plus. Sorry. Go ahead, Jocelyn. No, I was just going to say, yeah, uh, you know, that was a big uh, discussion point. And, you know, uh, really, we as a board and leadership really felt strongly that uh, we still needed to have something for membership and for clinicians in general. Uh, it's really about providing relevant and important education and for patient outcomes and for patient care. And really during a pandemic that doesn't, our work doesn't stop. Right. So the organization 
you know, needs to still support best practice and, and clinicians in, in what they do. So other organizations have, you know, also gone along the path of the virtual platforms and conferences. And, and I think we are lucky because we are later on in the year and some are going through the phases now of, you know, trying things and seeing what things are like. So we kind of are at an advantage because we can see what we want, <laughs> what may work, what may not work for us. And absolutely, that price point of $199 was um, really important for us to to have because we want it to be as accessible as possible, knowing that and fully respecting that we are all in a abnormal time, whether it's financially, work-wise, clinically, health-wise, you know, things are not normal. Things are not like they were. And, you know, we talk about March, that was not long ago. <laughs> it seems like an eternity ago, but February when we were all together in Denver, Michelle, that was not long ago. <laughs> So it's just crazy. So I'm really happy to hear that the feedback and the excitement around the price point is, uh, you know, doable for people because I know usually it's not doable, right, for them to fly and stay in a hotel and attend. So I really hope that, and again, conference managers, an amazing company to provide us with uh, a very good, interactive, engaging new platform, you know, virtually. And can I add one right. thing, Eric? It's important yeah. for me. Um, just working the speakers that were selected, um, both initially, um, you know, in Denver, when we had the full conference planned, and then when we had to make the changes that we did, everyone has been so incredibly understanding, mendable, um, flexible. Uh, so hats off to all of the folks that are participating in our meeting um, for just Absolutely. either being willing to speak with us virtually, even though it may not, they don't think it's going to provide the impact that it, it will anyway. Um, but also those who are willing to just hang tight and, and roll over with us to 2021. Um, that's right. Thank you. They, they've, yes. they've yeah, made this process much less painful. That's a really great call out, Michelle, and, and a credit to you and Jocelyn and the rest of the D team. I mean, I know that the D team every single year does a Herculean job sifting through all the abstract submissions and selecting presentations and, and speakers and, and talking to them. So just adding another layer of switching this to, hey, we're going to a virtual meeting. And by the way, it's happening the same year. You know, we're not <laughs> we're not doing it in 2021. That's adding a lot more stress, I'm sure. So it's a credit to you and your entire team. Um, and as you both mentioned, the the AVA member price is $199 uh, for AVA at your fingertips. And that will provide access to 35 continuing education credits, uh, which will be available for 45 days at the start of the meeting. And then so 45 days on that, which is like early December. Um, and then if you're not an AVA member and you'd like to attend, you can still get 35 CEs, but the cost is $325. So just head to avainfo.org slash annual and right on the front page is a huge giant graphic that says register here and you click that and you go in and fill out the process. So uh, ladies, I, I wanted to again, thank you for taking some time to chat with me about the whole decision. I know it hasn't been easy. It's 2020 has been an odd year for everyone uh, in the world. <laughs> so um, I know that 
there's still a lot more work to be done, but we're all looking forward to getting together uh, online and seeing each other through video chats uh, in late October. So thank you again, Michelle and Jocelyn. Thank you, Eric. Thanks, everyone. And welcome back to the I Save That podcast. Eric Sager, Ava, Director of Communications and Java Editor-in-Chief, back with you to close out the show. I'll have my Java Editor cap on for the final segment of this episode as I welcome from Louisville, Kentucky, uh, Dr. Jamie Furlong-Dillard to the Beyond Manuscript segment. Welcome. How are you doing? Great. How are you? Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, Thank you for joining. And now, Dr. Furlong Dillard, and she worked with Dr. Ellie Hirschberg. Uh, they're two of, I think, three of authors for the upcoming CE article set to publish um, in the fall issue of the Journal of the Association for Vascular Access, which is due out in September. Uh, their article is titled Diagnostic Accuracy Among Trainees to Safely Confirm Peripherally Inserted Central Catheter Placement Using Bedside Ultrasound. Now, obviously, Ensuring accuracy in pick placement is a critical skill for vascular access teams and clinicians alike, especially with the use, you know, training in ultrasound. Uh, but I want to kind of o- wanted to open our our discussion, Dr. Furlan Diller, with a, a general question of, you know, how did you and your team come up with this idea uh, for your study? I know you mentioned before we started recording that Dr. Hirschberg was your your mentor in this. You know, was was she the catalyst behind it, or was there anything that you can specifically pinpoint as to to why you did this? Sure. So it was done with a co-fellow of mine. We were actually third years in fellowship at the time. Um, We've been out of fellowship now for over two years, but we were in Salt Lake City, Utah. And we um, it's a pretty heavy research fellowship program. And so we'd already done a lot of like our requirements for graduation. And we're kind of just looking for something that was more interesting and something that we wanted to do more for um, uh, further development of kind of educational opportunities and learn more about different types of research. And so Um, Dr. Hirschberg, who is um, very well renowned, uh, renowned and known in the ultrasound field, um, actually has taught many times at the SCCM ultrasound course and um, is really one of our best teachers when it comes to ultrasound skill level, um, had done some projects with other fellows on um, ultrasound diagnostic um, type skills among trainees. And specifically one that she had done was looking at uh, like the subclavian um, ultrasound guided approach to central lines. And so okay. she, wow. um, yeah, and it was, um, she's really, she's actually incredibly successful. And the only time I've ever used ultrasound for subclavians was with her. Um, oh, but wow. <laughs> she um, was always when we would have um, call with her was always teaching us something and so she had um, the original idea and asked if we were interested in actually doing the legwork and, and making it come to fruition and so um, when we sat down and talked with her about you know the individual pieces that it would take we come up with the idea of actually using a point of care ultrasound like a handheld ultrasound instead of using the ultrasounds that we have on the unit which are much more cumbersome and large and invasive Mm -hmm. Um, and seeing if it would be something that we could do the point of it kind of being novice trainees was because most pick lines across the country are placed by the um, nurses led teams of pick line IV and so we wanted it to be something that you didn't need any like, special course or education for. Granted, most of these teams actually do use ultrasound for the placement of the pick lines, but they, um, we wouldn't want them to have to go through more education or more training to be able to confirm placement. And so the idea behind the whole thing was, could this be something that a novice level learner or trainee could accomplish to be able to use ultrasound 
to confirm pick line placements, and that would transition into cost savings and radio, radiographic exposure savings, et cetera, to hop hopefully one day, you know, the gold standard not be a chest x-ray. Because as most people know that work in the hospital setting, uh, often it's not just one chest x-ray, but multiple for a confirmation right. of the pick line. Right. And that costs quite a bit of money. So the cost savings, I'm sure... Th- your CNOs and the higher ups of the hospital are like, yeah, that's, that's, that's really good stuff. Let's, let's do this. So can you talk with us a little bit about just share some details on the methods uh, for this? You know, how did you conduct this observational study? And now I know the patient population was in pediatrics, correct? Yes. So um, we chose not to limit it to inside of the ICU itself because we're both critical care physicians. Um, But we decided to use just the access through the PICC line team. So they were some conducted in the unit on the ICU, but they were also um, done. A lot of them were done in the procedural unit. So a lot of children with like um, other chronic diagnosis that need PICC lines for long term other reasons besides an acute illness. And so um, and then a couple were done on the floor or in the OR as well when they would kind of lump procedures together like a g-tube right. and a pick line. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were done all over the hospital but with the same team and pretty much the same three nurses every single time um, and our main goal was to not um, have to disrupt or change process of care at the time and so um, we uh, had IRB approval to not have consent because we did not change anything about the patient's care. So we didn't change anything about the pick line team's practice and how they placed the pick lines or anything about their confirmation of how they made their own um, confirmation of pick lines, including when they would use ultrasound to scan up the neck before they would do the chest x-ray themselves. And so we would literally just kind of add on to them and then everything was blinded. And so they would not know what we found. And so nothing about the practice management would change or the kind of clinical practice guideline that they followed for pick lines. So it was pediatric patients and multiple places of the hospital with multiple diagnosis. We ended up actually getting a lot more, um, uh, more like child age than infant, which surprised us because in the ICU, we see mostly infants. Um, but in the ICU, specifically the cardiac ICU, a lot of our pick lines came from um, intervascular radiology that would place them under fluoro. And so those were excluded from the study because with fluoro, you don't really need ultrasound confirmation. Okay. How many patients did you review? So in the end, we ended up having 28 patients over a 10-month study period enrolled. They place way more picks than that. They probably place on average, um, I can't remember the exact amount, but on average, they at least do about 10 a month. Um, and so the fact that it took us 10 months is because we were fellows that still had active responsibilities in multiple other fields um, of study, including our own research projects that were coinciding as well as our time on service. And so we would, on our non-service weeks, come in and sit around the hospital and wait and see if there was a pick line placement that day. We wouldn't really have the schedule too much ahead of time. And so that's why it took us that long. But we felt like in the end, um, 28 patients were enough to make some, at least some initial conclusions. Uh, granted, right. I wish we'd had more because hopefully that would have given us even better statistics. But, you know, this is limitations of research, right? Sure. Yeah. And, and you outlined that in your limitations. So you, you just, it's just something that you have to, to deal with. So was there any additional like hurdles or problems that you came across, you know, other than just trying to get enough patients and within a, a confined amount of, of time or anything like that? 
Yeah, you know, I think one of the biggest things I try to outline in the discussion that the hurdle we came across was actually something that I think most people that would have conducted the study would have encountered. And that's it. The placement of the pick lines is actually a quite a bit different than the modified Seldinger technique that we usually use for central lines as a whole. And so, um, you know, when you do a central line, you'll, you know, get with ultrasound usually in today's world, um, obtain, you know, IV access and then with your needle and then you thread the wire and you leave the Mm -hmm. wire in, pull the needle out and thread the catheter, right? Well, the pick line technique is similar to that, but they actually use two different wires. um, And the initial wire is um, really, really small and not very echogenic at all. And then they feed it with a Another wire that's actually been pre-formatted and um, linked to fit the catheter size. So they, you know, measure from insertion site to where they hope that the uh, pick line would end up, you know, at the um, junction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and they, you know, pre-wire the catheter that way. And so there's no wire past the catheter that you feed the catheter over, which is how we use the Seldinger technique. So using um, the ultrasound to confirm like CDL placements is actually way easier because you see that wire in the depth of the wire before you put the catheter in. And then you can do other confirmatory tests like, you know, flush tests, etc. But with the pick line, you know, to not change their practice, we wouldn't ask them to change the way they were doing it. And so they would use their initial wire that was very small. So we, when we realized we weren't seeing the wire very often and um, our percentage rates of actually confirming the placement was low, we did kind of a QI process PPSA cycle and, and reevaluated and we got the wires from them and looked at them with the blue phantom um, and tried to see if we could see that wire with blue phantom and we could hardly even see it with the blue phantom. So in everybody that's done any kind of research and ultrasound knows if you can't see it with the blue phantom, you definitely can't see it in a patient very easy. Right. Yeah. So, totally. um, so that ended up being, for the most part, one of our biggest limitations was that we didn't expect that part of the process to be so limiting. Right. Yeah. That's definitely something that you kind of have to handle on the run. It sounds like, you know, just kind of get your feet underneath in and, and take it and figure out some other steps to, to move forward. Right. Yeah. So What's in, in the end, we ended up trying to see that, you know, could we see it some of the time regardless? And if the catheter was in perfect position, often you could, or the other ways that I'm sure we'll talk about, which was the flush test. Yeah. 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 Tell me about that. That was, that was interesting reading through that. So when we realized that the, unless it was really in perfect placement and um, that we wouldn't necessarily see the 0.012 inch guide wire that they use to place um, the initial wire and then thread it with the catheter with the right placement and right length. We were starting to rely a little bit heavier on visualization of some turbulent flow. We didn't do like the actual um, like saline flush test where you uh, agitate your saline and dip it because that wasn't their practice. Their practice was just a flush. The main reason they flushed actually was when they felt like they were in good placement. They would put the ultrasound that they used on the neck of the patient and flush at the same time and make sure there was no um, bubbles up the neck. Um, And so we took advantage of that 
by the only thing we asked them to do was tell us when they would flush and we would count how many seconds it was until we would see it. And um, interestingly, um, the median was 1.5 seconds of when it was confirmed to be actually in proper placement at the caboatrial junction. Um, but if, and so if it was more than that, specifically if it was more than about two to three seconds, um, it was usually in the wrong placement. So it, it would be in the uh, neck or it would be kind of crossed over into the other side of the body. Sure. Yeah. That's interesting. What else did you find? Was there any specific- well, the unfortunate piece of that was that um, if it was central, meaning if it at all in any location um, in the right atrium, if it was in the cavo junction, or if it was actually deep in through the RV, it was the same amount of seconds um, in flush test. Wow. And so you, what we learned is that though you could confirm that it was at least in a central location um, and considered a central access, it, you couldn't confirm that it was in the best proper placement for the patient. And so at this point in time, our conclusions of the study was that um, this was not a, a method that could replace the gold standard of chest x-ray. Right. So is there anything else you have planned or Beyond that, to to try to further this research to see anything else that could challenge that gold standard, if you will. So one of the other limitations that we found was that the bedside ultrasound that we used was made for adult um, vascular and cardiac probes. And so the centimeter depth was didn't go quite exactly what we would need it to be in, in shallowness. And so um, if we had had an ultrasound probe that was um, point of care ultrasound that was specifically made for children, we believe we probably could have gotten a better um, look at the actual catheter tip and itself. Um, And so the range of the V-scan ultrasound that we used on the cardiac probes was about eight centimeters from six to 12 possible. And the depth required for most pediatric patients would have probably benefited from at least four centimeters. And so we think that a better not a, I shouldn't say the word better, but a different type of um, availability in bedside ultrasound would have benefited us. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's one thing that we could have done different if we were to repeat the study. Um, and then um, I don't feel like we could change the guide wire and micro introducer, et cetera, process that they use itself. And so I don't feel like that part could have been changed. And so really, honestly, I think more numbers with better um, ultrasound capabilities and reconfirmation with larger case series numbers of the flush test itself could have helped in conjugation with the um, better view. Right. Yeah. That's never a bad idea or a bad thing to have more data, more numbers, more things to look at, Mm -hmm. more things to consider. So obviously you mentioned one of the big conclusions was that it your what you found was not really enough to challenge that gold standard, you know, the chest x-ray, you know, is that kind of the main takeaway that you have for those who read your study or what else do you want those who read uh, the study to, to take away? Yeah. And, and I'll reemphasize from what we said in the introduction. I mean, the point of this was to see if we, um, what could have replaced, um, a novice non-formally ultrasound trained, um, procedure by, to be able to use the ultrasound. And so in the fact that we only felt confident, you know, less than 50% of the time that we were able to visualize direct measurements of where the location of the catheter tip was or the wire, uh, I don't think this could be easily 
conducted at the bedside by somebody with even less um, education in ultrasound. Because, you know, as critical care fellows, we use the ultrasound daily on some All the time. degree. Of yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so even though we were novice in our training, we're not necessarily novice in um, exposure to ultrasound. And so I don't think it could be something that this time could be um, easily replaced. However, I think that um, as we've seen over the past 10 years, ultrasound use is increasing consistently among um many training programs and back to the where I work now at the University of Louisville we actually have a formal ultrasound course starting this year conducted by oh that's um, great some, nice yeah people on our staff and so I mean that's what the use of um knowledge base from the SCCM published ultrasound course etc and, and textbooks and other online resources but um our goal is that every fellow that graduates from here on out should need should could possibly have much more um comfortability with using ultrasound and so it's possible mm-hmm. that in the future this would still be an, a slight modification to the current practice could have made the project succeed right well the use of ultrasound is obviously very well endorsed by the association for vascular access you know as much as possible so i think it's i think it's great this is a a great study and and all ava members and journal subscribers can anticipate reading it in the fall issue of the journal of the association for vascular access which i mentioned before is due out in september Uh, and because it is the ce article for that issue you will also be able to find exam questions um, on ava academy starting in september where once you complete those, you'll be able to earn one continuing education credit. Dr. Furlong Dillard, I wanted to thank you for your time. Uh, really appreciated our conversation and thanks for joining the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Absolutely. You can see the entire AVA network calendar on the AVA website at www.avainfo.org, which is also where you can join AVA or donate to the AVA Foundation. AVA is all over social media. You can follow the Association for Vascular Access on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest. Make sure you're subscribed to the I Save That podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or Google Play Music for our Android users. You can also find direct links to all episodes on each of these streaming services by visiting avainfo.org slash podcast. The topics discussed on the I Save That podcast are purely for informational purposes. You should personally seek the guidance of clinicians before making any decision that affects your health or the health of of your patients. Listeners of this podcast are advised to do their own due diligence when it comes to making vascular access decisions. Our goal is to inform and entertain the healthcare landscape while giving you a starting point for your discussions with your own clinicians and professional advisors. By listening to this podcast, you agree that the hosts, our guests, our sponsors, and the Association for Vascular Access are not responsible for the success or failure of your health your career, or any decision you make related to any of the information we have presented. The I Save That podcast contains segments of copyrighted music that was not specifically authorized to be used, but is protected by federal law and the fair use doctrine, as cited in section 107 of the U.S. Copyright Act. If you have any specific concerns about this broadcast or our position on fair use defense, please contact us at podcast at avainfo.org. No part of this broadcast shall be reproduced, transmitted, or sold in whole or in any part or in any form without prior written consent from the Association for Vascular Access.